want to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be here. I've really appreciated the service so far. That song, God is Love, brought to mind another song that I really enjoy. Uh, How Great is Our God. Um, I don't know how many of you know that one, but He alone is God. It talks about Him alone being God. This morning, I'd like to share a message titled, Let My People Go. Now, if I'm uh, thinking right, this will conjure in your minds probably a scene in the Old Testament. And you will think about one man in the Old Testament when you think of, or maybe a few, when you think of this phrase, let my people go. Um, Am I right? Who are those men? Moses. A couple more yet. One more yet. I had Pharaoh, one more yet. Moses and Pharaoh. Aaron, yes. Uh, there's a lot more involved in this in this uh, scene, but they're the main people you think of. Aaron with his staff. I mean, Moses with his staff. Aaron and uh, being as God to Aaron. Uh, and then Pharaoh the resistor. Now this uh, title didn't come from any civil unrest or demonstrations that I've seen recently, so that's not what it comes from. Actually, it's a message about, or that I would like to give of leading up to Easter. And the first verse I'd like to read is Exodus 5, verse 1. Now Sonny shared in his message a... a um, about Moses and his wilderness experience and so forth here recently, an excellent message on that. Maybe I can build a bit off of that base. I'd like to read Exodus 5, verse 1 here. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So this is after Moses had met God at the burning bush, or God had met Moses at the burning bush. And we know the story there. Moses was no longer, he was maybe was settled into that life in the desert. He was enjoying it by this time. Um, He thought maybe that God's mission for for him was complete or that was his complete mission to be there in the wilderness. And so when God spoke to him in the burning bush there, Moses um, was somewhat resistant. He didn't really like the idea of going back to Egypt, going back to um, this work that God was calling him to. And finally, God um, finally got, God was persistent, and Moses finally, I wouldn't say caved, but he resigned himself to God's will, and he said, "Yes, Lord." I'll go. Um, and so what I'd like to look at is is this story, this true story of the children of Israel. And I'd like to think of it as, as this time, we're, this date that we're in right now, February, what is today, the 9th? Um, we're leading up to, to the Easter period. Now if this morning I came to you and told you I'm sorry, 
we're into March. Got that wrong. If this morning I came and told you, look, this is the time of the year uh, that we should be looking forward to marshmallow ducks, chocolate rabbits, and painted eggs. Would you think that something was wrong with that, with me saying that? I hope you would. It sounds very wrong, doesn't it? That this is the time of the year we should be looking forward to, to peeps and chocolate bunnies and painted eggs. Um, this time of the year, I believe, is a time leading up to deep spiritual significance for the, for the Christian. And actually, nowhere in the Bible do we find any reference to examples of or allusions that would suggest that we should celebrate Easter with sugar-coated marshmallows, painted eggs, or chocolate rabbits. We don't find that anywhere in the Scripture. So, whatever that is, you don't find it in the Scripture. Uh, I'd like to look at a little bit of Easter custom. Um, Lent, this is March... Let me see, this begins on, on Ash, Ash Wednesday. And maybe Gary would have this down better than I do. But on Ash Wednesday begins the first day of, of Lent. And I thought I had that day down here. But it's 40 days prior to Easter. And this is a period when um, Orthodox um, Christians, uh, Eastern Orthodox and Catholics and so forth would start their fast of not eating meat. Um, it's a spiritual discipline for them. They see it as, as that in a time of, of uh, pondering on the, the suffering of Christ and His sacrifice. We don't find in the Bible a custom of Lent, but I do appreciate those that would, would observe that, that, that I think is notable. Now, for the Christians as a whole, Easter, and I'll read, I'll read here a, a article by Janabi Baroa. Uh, for Christians, the Easter egg is symbolic of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Painting Easter eggs is a especially beloved tradition in the Orthodox and Eastern Catholic churches where the eggs are dyed to red to represent the blood of Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to talk about Easter eggs, how they're used in our society, Easter egg hunts and egg rolling are two popular egg-related traditions. An egg hunt involves hiding eggs outside for children. And I'm not going to get in there, but even the White House has an egg hunt on Easter morning, egg, Easter egg roll. So this is, it's a tradition. Now, the above would collaborate with our experience in Romania, the Easter egg and how the, the Eastern Orthodox uh, celebrated with the with the egg, and I could kind of understand that they would they would see that as as a sign of new life. Um, if I were to fast from eating meats and eating eggs all the way for forty days, maybe I would start painting hard boiled eggs too in celebration of being able to eat another egg at some point. Now all of this may sound peripheral, and it is. I'm just giving some commentary on you know kind of. Christianity, painting what Christianity as a whole, how they celebrate Easter, or what they may think of. Um, question could be asked, you know, that's just 
insignificant. You know, what will passing out Easter peeps hurt anyone? Those are those little chicks, you know, that you can buy with the marshmallows and the yellow and have sugar coating on them. Or what will a chocolatey Easter rabbit harm a child? You know, what harm could that bring to a little child? I'm not sure if either one will hurt or harm. Um, But my real concern lies in this question is, are we and our children, are we really focusing, are we really understanding the full significance of what Easter really is? Are we learning the meat of the Easter season? Or are we buying into the superficial, pagan, and humanistic, or quasi-Christianity tradition of, of Easter? I believe that God has set a type for Easter in the Old Testament. In Easter, when I think of Easter here, when I use Easter here this morning, and what's used traditionally from even early Christians is the, the whole um, passion of Christ, the, the, his, his life, His death, his suffering, or suffering death, resurrection. God has set a type in the Old Testament for Easter. God wanted a lamb for a sacrifice. He didn't want vegetables or a painted egg. In the Cain and Abel account, he called for a lamb. Again, not vegetables or or anything else. God supplied a ram in Isaac's stead, not a not a peep or something like that. God asked for the sacrifice of goats in Leviticus as a sin offering, but then more specifically when we get further into the Moses account, the lamb becomes a representation or becomes a Passover um, sacrifice. So, so much for that running commentary about uh, peeps and chocolate bunnies and, and painted eggs. Um, what I want to focus on this morning more is about what is what is Easter really about for us? What's the meat of Easter season? Let my people go. Easter is all about, I believe, God freeing His people. God freeing His people. And why do God's people need to be freed? And this is where I'm going to focus the message this morning. Why do God's people need to be freed? Exodus 3.7 The Lord said, I have seen, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So we have a God that sees and He understands and He feels the oppression of the Israelites. In Egypt, they are oppressed. Their taskmasters are cruel. The people's sorrow is great. You know, 40 years prior to this, Moses barely escaped an untimely death as an infant under Pharaoh's command. So there was a genocide that took place there. A genocide where because the Egyptians were afraid of the threat of this growing Israeli population, they called for the death of the infant sons. And we see that Moses just barely escaped that. Well, give 40 more years of that sort of leadership, that sort of cruel power, and imagine what it had developed by this time. I mean, I don't know exactly the tortures and so forth, but I look at Hitler 
And you look at other uh, populations that are, are, are governments that are left to degenerate, and they can go very quickly from being civil to being very, very barbaric and cruel and genocidal. And I imagine that's how the Egyptians were. I imagine by this time, 40 years later, it had gotten awful. Perhaps it was like Hitler's ironic statement that he had written there at Auschwitz and Dachau, this concentration camps, as you walked in, he had an, on the gates, Arbeit macht frei, which means work makes free, which is, I guess in the only sense that work made free in those concentration camps is that they worked people to death. And that was, I guess, the freedom maybe they were alluding to. They had, the Egyptians had probably decided by this time it's better to work the Israelis, the Israelites to death on state projects than to outright kill Israeli people. Then we go to Exodus 5, 1 again. Again, Moses afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Or maybe he said, who is the Lord? Maybe that's more like what it sounded. Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. You know, here was a man that was quite arrogant. He didn't really know who he was up against. Um, Pharaoh, Pharaoh would learn to know the Lord and who he is. And I believe it's a good uh, example for us when we come against people who speak arrogantly of God and of Christ that we don't become discouraged. They don't know the Lord. And God will not be mocked. Every knee will bow at some point to the Lord. Then verse 3, So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with a pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Go, get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks, which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on them, on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. The busy-to-death strategy laid out by Pharaoh here. Keep the people so busy, they won't have time to consider their bondage or even to consider their possible freedom. And the devil uses that very same strategy today, very effectively. Keep people bound in whatever they're doing. Make them mindless. Make them a mindless object in the whirlwind of life. Make them think they're living the dream. And the devil doesn't really concern himself with what kind of bondage, with what type of bondage he keeps people in, as long as it distracts people sufficiently from reflecting on their soul's needs. The bondage isn't the concern, it's just 
the concern is that they're bound enough not to be able to reflect on their soul's needs. Verse 10, And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go, get yourself straw where you find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why, you, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, Make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten. But the fault is your own people. But he said, Pharaoh, You are idle, idle. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given you. Yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. So in my words, paraphrasing here a bit, Pharaoh says, you lazy, lazy bums. You have time to come and request time off to sacrifice. That means you have too much time on your hands. Anyone that has time to seek God's face has too much time on his hands in Pharaoh's mind. Making bricks and buildings is much more important than developing a relationship with your God. Fools, go make bricks. Besides making the brick, gather the straws well. Lazy bums. This was all easy enough for Pharaoh and his court to say from their comfortable position, right? My buildings, the brick you need to make for my buildings is so much more important than you developing a relationship with God. You giving homage to your God. I came across a story recently that I'd like to share. Um, it's a story of a mentally disabled Korean named Kim. And this is out of the AP on January 1. He ran, Kim, he ran the first chance he got. The summer sun beat down on the shallow sea-fed fields where Kim was forced to work without pay. Day after 18-hour day, mining the big salt crystals that blossomed in the mud around him. Half blind and enraged, Kim grabbed another slave and the two men, both disabled, headed for the coast. Far from Seoul, this glittering steel and glass capital of one of Asia's richest countries, they were now hunted men on this tiny remote island where the enslavement of disabled salt farm workers is an open secret. It was a living hell, Kim said. I thought my life was over. Lost, they wandered past asphalt black salt fields sparkling with a patina of thin white crust. They could feel the islanders they passed watching them. Everyone knew who belonged and who didn't. Near a grocery, the, near a grocery store, the store owner's son came out and asked what they were doing. Kim broke down and begged for help, said he'd been held against his will. The man offered to take him to the police to file a report. Instead, he called their boss, who beat Kim with a rake, and it was back to the salt fields. I couldn't fight back, Kim said. 
in a recent series of interviews with the Associated Press, whose details are corroborated by court records and by lawyers, police and government officials. The Islanders are too organized, too, con too connected. Slavery thrives in the chain of rural islands off of South Korea's rugged southwest coast, nurtured by a long history of exploitation and the demands of trying to squeeze a living from the sea. Five times during the last decade, revelations of slavery involving the disabled have emerged, each time generating national shame and outrage. Kim's case prompted a nationwide government probe over the course of several months last year. Officials searched more than 38,000 salt, fish, and agricultural farms and disabled facilities and found more than 100 workers who had received no or only scant pay and more than 100 who had been reported missing by their families. On the night of July 4, 2012, a stranger approached Kim in, Seoul, in a Seoul train station where he was trying to sleep. Kim had been homeless since fleeing creditors a decade earlier. The man offered him lodging in the night and promised him food, cigarettes, and a good job in the morning. Hours later, Kim stood in the muck of a salt farm owned by Hong, who had paid an illegal job agent the equivalent of about $700 for his new worker, according to the court records. Kim, visually disabled and described in court documents as having the social awareness of a 12-year-old, had no money, no cell phone, and only the vaguest idea of where he was. The afternoon of his first full day on the farm, Hong erupted as Kim struggled with a back-breaking work. According to the pro prosecutor's indictment that a judge based Hong's sentence on, the owner grabbed him from behind and flipped him onto the ground, screaming, You moron! If I knew, you, if I'd had known, if I knew you'd be at, so bad at this, I wouldn't have brought you here. In the weeks, in the next weeks, Hung punched him in the face for not cleaning floor, floors properly. He beat him on the buttocks with a wooden plank for raking the salt the wrong way. Each time I tried to ask something, his punch came first, Kim told the AP. He told me to use my mouth only for eating and smoking. He said I shouldn't question things and should be thankful because he fed me and gave me lodging and work. It was just as bad for the other slave. Only a week after his first capture, Kim began to plan another escape. The second time they ran, Kim and Shay again tried to find their way to the port, but they had to pass the grocery store to get there, and again the store owner's son, identified by officials only as Yoon, rounded them up and called Hung. After another beating, it was back to work. The few hours they weren't in the fields, they slept in the concrete storage building filled with piles of junk and large orange sacks of rice. Kim despaired of ever escaping. Hung was an influential man, a former village head. He was linked by regular social contact and family ties with the other salt farmers and villagers, some of whom volunteered to patrol the island for escaped workers. Although Kim lived only three kilometers from the police station, he never thought about asking for help. He believed he'd be ignored or worse returned. Kim ran again at the end of the month. Hong quickly called members of the volunteer patrol, and again Yoon spotted the slaves as they tried to reach the port and brought them to Hong. Furious, the owner issued an ultimatum. Run again and you'll get a knife in the stomach. Hong beat Kim so badly he broke Kim's glasses, leaving him nearly blind. He worked Kim so hard, the slave was too tired to think about escape, even if he had, hadn't been terrified to try. It just drove me deeper and deeper into despair, Kim said. I never had a chance. 
I'm trying to stay with Kim's story here. And After a year and a half as a slave, Kim made one last bid for freedom. He wrote a letter to his mother and soul that he never expected to be able to send, calling himself her foolish son. He got a break when Hong's wife let him go alone for a haircut. Walking slowly without his glasses, he ducked into the post office and mailed the letter, which gave directions to the farm. Kim's mother was stunned. She brought the letter to the So Jung police captain for the Seoul Guru district, and a vanished person had suddenly reappeared. The police chief said, because Kim's letter noted collaboration between local police and salt farm owners, Seo and another SEAL officer ran a clandestine operation without telling local officials. And anyways, they went to the island, found the man. The officers found the slave sitting on a mattress in the back room of a storage building with no heat or hot water. Kim wore thin, dirty clothes, slippers and socks with big holes. He looked, Seo said, like a person who had been homeless for a very long time. Kim was frightened and baffled at first and then relieved. I'm going to live, he said. Villagers, unaware that Kim's escorts were actually Seoul police, harassed him at the docks, asking him where he was going. Some even called Hung. When Kim met his mother the next day, they both wept. She stroked her son's face. Everything is all right because you've come back alive, she says in a police video of her reunion. Kim, who lives in Seoul and occasionally works construction jobs, still seems amazed that, escape, that his escape plan worked. His body aches and he gets treatments for lingering pain in his neck, legs, and spine. Now all I want is peace, Kim said. I still get nightmares, still wake up in the middle of the night. His time as a slave has even changed the way he feels about salt. He gets flustered when he talks about it. It disgusts, it disgusted when he sees it. Just thinking about it makes me grind my teeth. Well, the reason I shared this story, for one, is I think it does us well to realize there is still real evil in this world. And I know we don't need to be reminded of that, but I think it does us well to understand the true face of evil. The devil and his minions are cruel taskmasters with no thought but for themselves, like Pharaoh. Uh, there was an article I'd read recently about Hermann Goring, which was the architect of World War II, or worked right alongside of Hitler. He was by any measure a, a horrible human being. And again, just illustrating how that evil Evil is uh, doesn't even doesn't even how would you say recognize itself. Uh, you know he was this man Hermann Goring Goring or Goring was responsible for for many 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 deaths. And uh, a minor bit of trivia is is that he was also an avid art collector. His favorite painter was the Dutch master Vermeer. And apparently Hitler had several works by this artist and Goering desperately wanted one for himself. Adolf has three and I want one for myself, probably Goering thought. And uh, so he paid this, this Han van Meegren, uh, the modern day equivalent of about seven million to get one of these works from Vermeer. 
When the Germans lost World War II, according to this article, Goering was arrested and all of his assets were seized. Additionally, the art dealer Van Meegren was arrested and charged with treason for aiding and abetting the enemy with this sale. Faced with the possible death sentence, Van Meegren made a confession. The painting was not a real Vermeer. It was a forgery, but he himself had created. The charges were dropped, and Van McGreen became a folk hero in Holland for having pulled one over a Nazi bigwig. Now, the part of the story that's really interesting is that Gehring's reaction was recorded when he found out his beloved expensive painting was a fake. One account states that upon hearing the news, the Nazi commander in italics looked as if for the first time he had discovered there was evil in the world. Someone had tricked him very badly. And, and this just goes to show how that, to me, how that evil doesn't, may not even recognize itself. Um, you know, Pharaoh there, he saw these Israelites as something less than human, something less than himself. And for that reason, he was willing to, to put them, you know, to, to basically force them into killing labor. Again, you know, the, the Nazis, they saw the, the Jews and the other ethnic groups that they killed and so forth. They saw them as something as less than themselves. Well, that's the devil. That's the face of the devil. He's a master of lies, manipulation, and propaganda. And in the following, he succeeds in convincing these Israeli taskmasters, and this was a terribly unfair to the, to the Israelis, that Pharaoh would assign of their own taskmasters. I read, you know, read about that in the Negro history here in, in or the slave history here in America. You know, what is more unfair than, than assigning uh, people of the group to, to beat and to, to become taskmasters of their own people, of their own fellow men. But he, he's convinced these taskmasters that, that Moses and Aaron, which God had sent as their salvation, as means of their salvation, that they were the fault. They were the fault for the increased labor, for their increased misery of the, these people. The officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. And this is in verse 19. And then they came out from Pharaoh. They met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. And you can kind of see where they're coming from. You know, up to this time, it was bad enough. But since you guys came on the scene and since you've done what you've done, all of a sudden our lives are just twice as miserable. And, you know, what are you going to do about this? So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you? Why is it you have sent me? 
Well, it's said that it's easier to take people out of slavery than to take slavery out of the people. That takes just a little bit. Took just a bit for me to absorb, even though I know what it means. But again, it's it's easier it's easier to take the people out of slavery than it is to take the slavery out of people. We as people are so very short-sighted and temporal. You know, here God was lifting His hand to bring His children out of Egypt's bondage. Guess what? All it took was just a bit more bondage, a bit more pressure, a bit more <clears throat> imposed hardship, and the people are blaming God's messenger or God Himself. And no doubt we're promised tribulation in this world. Jesus said that. However, tribulation is much different than, than making bricks or feeding the swine under the cruel and sinister hand of Pharaoh. God's discipline is a loving discipline. It brings us to himself. And the devil is so different. It's about killing us, killing our souls. He's an evil taskmaster. He manifests himself differently at times, sometimes more benign, like maybe in Israel's earlier history in Egypt. Maybe he even manifests himself as good, but he mostly uses a ploy as that he uses in Genesis, that logic, that logic ploy. Yea, hath God said and, and urges humanity to rely on its own flawed wisdom and to, to uh, direct men to self-destruct by their own flawed uh, outlook. And on the face though, whatever the face is, the devil is, the real devil is all he wants for mankind is death and slavery and a bitter end. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Galatians 4.3 says, Even so, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. A bit of a different slant here in Galatians. Um, but the same thought that we're not in grace, like we'd heard this morning, um, until we've taken Christ into our lives. John thirteen four, John three fourteen says, "As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life." For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him should be saved. And he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. There was this little... Um, I'm not sure what it's called. Uh, this this little guy. Uh, it was in our Facebook thread. Um, 
that's looking up serenely in the sky. And he says this, on the day I was born, angels looked into my cozy little crib, gazed upon my cherubic face and declared, this one is going to be trouble. Um, you know, we're under without Christ, without the beautiful story, true story of Easter. We're under a cruel taskmaster. One that doesn't have any mercy, that only wants death for us. And we're trouble in and of ourselves. We're born that way. Um, you know, till we get on the right side, on the side of Christ, are taken into his family, um, we really are like that Kim at the mercy of someone who's held for that person's benefit. We don't have free will, really, even though maybe our slave master tells us that. But because of the beautiful story of Easter, because of what we're this, not the season we're coming into, but the, the season we're commemorating, we have such a, uh, we have, there, there's, there's such beauty ahead for us. And this is, let my people go. This is what Christ came to do. Came to let his people go. Um, we are Christ. We are made for him. And when Christ comes to let his people go, he comes to release them to their fullest heavenly potential and to make them, let them become what they're made to be, which is so different than Pharaoh's approach. I hope this will inspire you to be thinking thoughtfully of, of uh, Easter and this season and Christ and what he's done is doing for us. God bless you.